Hello and welcome to another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I'm joined as usual by my wonderful co-host Tom. Hello. How you going, buddy? Yes, good, thank you, Chris. How are you going? I'm, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. We are. We should probably let our listeners know that we are back doing these via Zoom. Yeah, we've had a second wave. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Melbourne has had its uh, balls deep in a second wave of COVID, so we're going to be doing some Zoom episodes again for the next foreseeable future. Six weeks. Yeah. It seems. At, at least, at least six weeks, but... um. That's that's fine. August is looking a whole lot better because they announced the uh, the program for the Melbourne Film Festival last night. Oh yeah, and you're obviously very excited. I'm excited. I've got like 28 to 30 films or something on my list, and I've I've already bought tickets to a bunch of them, and yeah, it's gonna be great. It's all online now, right? Yeah, it's all online now, which is um, so it's uh, you know, great way to like they're calling it Myth 68 and a half, like so it's not the okay. 69th year, it's it's like a half year. But they got some really cool stuff there, like uh, Kelly Reichardt's film First Cow, uh, Ben Zeitlin's Wendy, um, heap of awesome documentaries like Steve James's new documentary, uh, huge slew of interesting stuff. So I'm I'm excited, and it, it's pretty crazy because you know you'd think that the people that run these kinds of festivals they would be so anti online because you don't have that theater experience but here we are yeah that i mean it's it's the it's like that double edged sword thing of like yeah obviously uh, the, one of the huge parts of myth is the theater going experience but what do you do without it do you just cancel the festival altogether do you do this mini streamy version like yeah yeah they got to do something exactly and you know there, there's some good stuff so i'm excited yeah, well, that's uh, that's good. Mm. Grand, wonderful. Only <laughs> <laughs> yelling on the bus. Yeah, uh, but I guess we should probably jump into this week's film. Uh, we are back with some Robert Altman goodness. We have. I'm, I'm beginning to really like his work now. Yeah, he's an interesting one. I've been. He was especially in the last like maybe year or two. I've been excited uh, for you to check out his stuff because uh, I'm a big fan of things like, um, Long Goodbye and, uh, Nashville. Um, so I've been kind of, and obviously, you know, Gosford F- Park is fucking awesome. <laughs> um, Gosford so Fuck. Gosford, it, Gosford Fuck is parking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I've just been looking forward to you to, for you to see some of his stuff. So glad you're enjoying it. And we had Secret Honor this week. Yeah, 1984, Richard Nixon in a room for an hour and a half. Yeah, uh, Philip Baker Hall, Tour de Force. Yeah. Um, I will read the uh, Criterion synopsis. Uh, Sequestered in his home, a disgraced president, Richard Milhouse Nixon, armed himself with a bottle of scotch and a gun to record memoirs that no one will hear. He's surrounded by silent portraits of Lincoln, Eisenhower, Kissinger, and his mother as he resurrects his past in a passionate attempt to defend himself and his political legacy. Based on the original play by Donald Freed and Arnold M. Stone, and starring Philip Baker Hall in a tour de force solo performance, Robert Altman's Secret Honor is a searing interrogation of Nixon's mystique and an audacious depiction of unchecked paranoia. Hmm. So, I, I, so this was originally a theater piece. Um. Yeah, it was a local, uh, small theater group in Los Angeles that were putting on, it on as a play in 1983. Uh, it was exceptionally well received. Um, I know Philip Baker Hall was nominated for a Drama Desk Award and things for it, but uh, Robert Altman actually just went and saw the play uh, really early on. I think Philip Baker Hall said he saw it in its run when it was in like a thirty-five seat theater, like really small, and Altman just gushed over it. Was <laughs> like, "This is the greatest." Um, to the extent that he then said uh, he took it from a small Los Angeles theater and produced it off Broadway. Like, initially moved the entire production and did it off-Broadway in New York. And mm. then uh, also and said, I want to take this to broad- off-Broadway and I want to make a film out of it. It's a great idea. I think, like, you can apply this to any, really any president. And, they, and they, you know, since this film. Yeah. Will, Will Ferrell did Bush. I've, I've got that uh, actually listed down. There, there's actually a kind of bit of a history of uh, actors doing kind of one-man shows of presidents. Um, the actor James Whitmore, uh, he had done... Uh, 
he'd played uh, Harry S. Truman in Give Him Hell, Harry, and then uh, Theodore Roosevelt in Bully. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, Will Ferrell doing his uh, George Bush one. Yeah, it's so it's so applicable. And I'd love to see a, a Trumpified one as well. <sighs> I don't know about that. That'd almost be well, too the, agonizing. <laughs> you, it, it, it it's just fascinating. It depends which way you would go with it. Like, if, like I, I actually really genuinely love the Will Ferrell one. I think um, it's both hilarious and then also actually he knows when to get kind of serious with it in the play. It's really nice. Um, the Trump one would be interesting if you did it like Secret Honor, where it is just like unbridled paranoia and insanity, just like stream of consciousness <laughs> like that essentially takes a figure that is uni- almost universally reviled and then kind of paints them in a sympathetic light or it, like not totally, but like helps you kind of understand well, them a bit. Well, this, I mean, this film doesn't really do that. It doesn't really uh, paint him in a sympathetic light at all because he's just so tangential and psychotic almost. No, but I, I think what I meant to say, like with uh, sympathetic light is it, it allows you to sympathize for how crazy he is, I guess. Yeah. 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 Like you, feel, you feel bad for him. You feel bad for him. I, I suppose, but you know, they're, they're they're presidents. They need to like they need to take some kind of punishment. Mm. It's just like being a polit, like a be a politician. Yeah. And a world leader on that level, like you have to fucking be able to take the punches. But I mean, like Will Ferrell managed to do a sympathetic Bush to some degree. Yeah, but that's because like he starts his Bush, like he'd done it for years on Saturday Night Live and fucking nailed it. He was fantastic. It was like one of his most known for things on that show. And then doing it as the play, it, like I said, like, have you ever seen it? Yeah. I mean, a a long time ago now. Yeah, And how it it starts like him as the buffoon, the silly guy, the bro guy who's like, all right, chicken wings and beer. And then it eventually gets into what happened with his presidency. And it kind of actually gets serious there. And it's really nice. So. Whereas, mm. yeah, that, but this one, it's interesting because going into it, like, we all, at you know, obviously 1984, this is only 10 years, I think, post-Watergate. Like, it's not that far removed from it. Um, and not a lot had been done with Nixon as a quote-unquote character at that point. Um, so to see this kind of unbridled look at him is is very unique and... Yeah, it, it's just kind of crazy. <laughs> well, it is confrontational because uh, the way that he portrays him... You, I mean, you, first of all, I enjoy the fact that there's really no makeup. Um, mm. I think that a lot, a lot of the time when, when you should see Nixon on screen, there's a lot of makeup and there's the nose piece and fucking whatever. Yeah. And it kind of... It, it really breaks the immersion and pulls you away from... That the person, the character. I mean, yeah. it's not even a character; it's like a real person. But yeah, um, you're totally right. There, there's like maybe a handful of performances I can think of where someone has played Nixon, where they're just like, "No, we're not going to slap on like a prosthetic nose and the jowls. We're just going to let you embody the person." And like, this is key with this one. Like the other ones, like Dan Hedaya in Dick and <laughs> that that movie with uh, Kirsten Dunst. Um, and, oh, yeah. and I think Frank Langella in Frost Nixon doesn't really have much going on. He's yeah, just, there, it's, there's really not much at all. I think it might be like a slight nose yeah. thing going on, but it's hardly noticeable. Mm. The, the point is, is that they're using their acting ability to portray a man. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, I, I, I like it when they do that, when they just go, we don't need to, to worry about makeup. Let's just look at the actor and, and become immersed in the in this person that is Nixon. Mm. Uh, and the reality is, is that Philip Baker Hall really lays it on thick in terms of the, the paranoia, the, the anger, the rage. The uh, the stream of consciousness of it all as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, it, it blew my mind to think that, because, I mean, I'm guessing you, similar to me, is like mainly familiar with Philip Baker Hall because of the P.T. Anderson films. Yeah, yeah. Like, and also, um, also Bookman from Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Of course, Bookman. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know what you were doing, did you? Didn't you? <laughs> uh, yeah, but his filmography is... is I, I was looking at it before, before I jumped on to record, and his filmography is, is one of the best I've ever seen. Yeah, he... But 
that's the thing. Like, he's not that big of a film actor, really. He, no, it's mostly television. It, it most, but it was also, he was a huge theatre actor. Huge okay. in the New York theatre scene. Uh, and he didn't actually go out until to LA to start doing, like, film and TV stuff until he was, like, in his 40s. So Yeah, he started late. Like, I mean, he's in his 70s now, I think. And mm. he was born in the 31. And he didn't start... I think his first film role was 1970. So, I mean, that's, like, 29. Uh, which I which I would consider to be a late start. Yeah, and then uh, like he's in his mid forties with this one here with Secret Honor. So, and then, but the thing that blows my mind is that he didn't become the biggest dramatic actor ever off of this film. <laughs> it must have been a choice because, like, if you look at his filmography, there's you know the Truman Show, Boogie Nights, Air Force One, The Rock. Uh, and that's just like within three years that I'm looking oh, at. Like, if like you... yeah, sorry. I, I just know this cause I just edited a video with clips from the rock in it. Um, there's, um, he plays like military guy number four. Yeah. It's all these little minor <laughs> like, roles. Yeah. He, he, he must've made a call like, cause he, he must've had offers after mm. this and gone like, dude, you, you've carried this whole film and it's really engaging. Yeah. And, and, and do no, you want to do yeah. this and this and this? And he says, yeah. I'm, I'm going to do some character stuff, just small mm. little bit roles and things like that. And I like the the probably the biggest role apart from this that I've ever seen him in. Like, um, like he has an amazing role in Magnolia um, as Jimmy Gator, the kids' game show host. That mm. that shit is heartbreaking to watch. Um, mm. But then in P. T. Anderson's first film, uh, Hard Eight, which was originally originally called Sydney, and he plays Sydney. He, he was the lead. And turns out that's because uh, Secret Honor is one of P.T. Anderson's favorite films of all time. Okay. And so he's just like... like sort him out. Yeah, and he was like, Philip Baker Hall is the shit, and I want to put him in all my movies. <laughs> yeah, as in the Zodiac as well, like... Oh, yeah, it, yeah. It, he's, it's staggering. It, it's one of the best filmographies I've ever come across. Mm. Um, and, and yet, you know, here he is. Like this weird... Like, no one knows his name. I, I didn't. I didn't really pay attention to his name until at this point right now. Hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. He is like one of those quintessential character actor people. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. If you think he's like on the Mount Rushmore of character actors, I think. Yeah. Hmm. So I think let's get into it. I thought. I thought. Um, should we try and contextualize a little bit? I. I mm-hmm. You know, th- like there's. I found the film to be. Uh, I felt like. He, he goes into his life to such a degree and the portrayal is so um, explosive, like going this way and that way, that I found myself going like a lot of times going, like, I'm not really sure that I know what you're talking about, man. Yeah. And there's um, a lot of deep cut, like politically referenced stuff to like what was happening yeah. at that time. So... And we, and we weren't born at that stage. Yeah. Um, even uh, So I think like if you're an adult... Um, that grew up, uh, well, that was an adult at the time in, in the seventies, then you'd have some kind of knowledge, yeah. especially if you're an American, obviously, mm. then you could watch this film and, and not be, and that wouldn't be a problem so much, but yeah. I did find myself having to go like, look, I got to go on Wikipedia and, and learn about Nixon. Cause I, I don't know what he's talking about half the time. The dealings with Kissinger and stuff and all of that. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I think, can we do a, um, like a refresher? Especially on like Watergate, for example, which got him into the the, the mess in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so he, he gave the go ahead to go for, to a wiretap um, on the Democratic National Committee's headquarters at the Watergate complex. Yep. And then five men were arrested uh, during a break in. Yes, to try um, and like yeah. Yeah, to do the wiretaps and stuff like that. So I, I thought it was interesting. I didn't know this until now that security guard found a tape. Um, they found a tape over the access doors. And some of the officers, and he mm-hmm. removed them, and then later on found uh, there was the tape had been reapplied. So then he called the police, um, and then one of the lookouts was watching television instead of looking out, so they didn't see the police come in, uh, and they got caught. And then later on, um, the committee for re-election of the president or creeps, mm-hmm. which they were um, so well known for, um, later on they used half a million dollars um, or in fundraise. Uh, in campaign fund money in yeah sorry mm. in campaign fund money um in order to pay the legal fees of the five watergate burglars and then yeah 
it's like, why is this all connected? And yeah, and then uh, with the help of uh, Deep Throat, a inside whistleblower, uh, leaking information to Woodward and Bernstein, the two uh, journalists at the Washington Post that broke the story, and then yada yada yada. Nixon gets impeached, uh, becomes the first president ever, sitting president ever, be impeached. And uh, he, well, I mean, he resigned well, to avoid he, he, impeachment. Yeah, but. he resigned to avoid impeachment and any pol- and any possibilities but of that. Um, he would have been impeached, though. Like, yeah, for sure. And then, yeah. um, which is I, the, like the one moment that I kind of love in the film. Actually, is him. I mean, then like a year later, obviously Gerald Ford takes over the presidency and gives a full presidential pardon to Nixon, which I loved that him ranting about that in the film where he's just like essentially been like I just always go to Futurama like the Nixon person like Nixon character in that just call, like calling Ford like a pussy <laughs> like <laughs> for pardoning him and he does it in this film he's like that goddamn pussy like you know and he resents him because and he it's, it's super interesting in an insight into the quote unquote, like again air quotes character of Nixon in this where he's like by Ford pardoning me it made me guilty. And I stand by, I was not guilty by what I did. And you're like, yeah, but you did a crime, buddy. <laughs> yeah, but there was no trial in his opinion. So therefore... He would have know, been found innocent, innocent if there were was a trial. And by, you know, the implication of a pardon is that you were guilty in the first place. So he's, his reputation is forever tarnished, which is kind of why I think leads to... Stuff like the gun being in the film. It, it's, well, it's, that, that was fascinating because um, the film starts off, you know, him kind of kicking around his, his his office and setting up the recording device. And then there's this gun. Yeah. And and I just, I mean, the score, at this point I want to mention the score because mm. it was a really fantastic score with this like kind of mysterious piano and, and strings. Like very mysterious. Uh, and then every time you had a shot of the gun, there'd be this militarized drumming. Um, and it's, there's really, the score kind of, I think would be probably a total of 10 to 15 minutes over the course of the whole film, but yeah, it's used very sparingly, but when it's used, it's very, very effective. Um, and so, yeah, you have this gun that's like set up right at the start that it's an important object in the room. Uh, and you know, it doesn't come back. He doesn't pick it up again until later. Oh no, there's a, there is a point where he starts like pointing it at the microphone. For yeah, a while. and then like he swings it at the portrait of Kissinger, and then I think yeah, at the yeah. portrait of his own mother. Like you know, it's a, yeah. it's a full off the deep end thing. But it's 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 really interesting because it's it's there to set it up at the beginning. The whole idea of this is a a man who is kind of unhinged or at the end of his rope. But then he puts it down, and you forget about it mm-hmm. until. He kind of hits those points, like I was saying, like where it's, you know, talking about Watergate and his pardon and having to leave the presidency. This whole, this giant thing that he has been working up towards his entire life and, you know, wanting to serve the people and yada yada. And then he, you realize, and then he picks it up again and you realize, oh yeah, this is what we've been watching. It's a man telling a story of how he became unhinged, how yeah. he, he lost everything and how he is at the end of his rope and this is... How, how he can get to this state of just stream of conscious rambling telling. He's, he's fallen off the edge yeah. like, already. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's quite remarkable. I, I was um, I was kind of worried at the start because I, I realized that I'm going to watch a film with one person in it and yeah. it's in a single office. So you didn't know that it was based off a play? No. Oh, okay. No, not until you just mentioned it before. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking, well, shit, like you'd want to have a pretty amazing script and you want to have a pretty amazing performance to keep, um, yourself engaged throughout the whole film. But, but more than that, um, how are you going to create a flow that is going to give like deliver drama and then ease off and, you know, just continue to keep you engaged in that regard? Mm. Um, and and they do that by by having Nixon becoming going into states of calm and reflection, and then coming out into this rage and just like tangential, you know, spin offs in one direction and that direction and this direction. Yeah, um, it's um like the, I've, uh, the note that I wrote down is like 
the performance and the delivery of like and the way that it goes tangentially kind of zigzags all over the fucking place um it's it's kind of like he's racing his thoughts like he he's his voice is racing his thoughts and he's his mouth is trying to beat the thoughts out and so it's this constant battle and you know it creates the chaotic energy that helps establish this character that he's playing i think it's all part of he's he's incapable of practically anything it seems Mm. i mean the the start is him i mean like the first the first few shots is him trying and failing to use the fucking voice recorder yeah and then like uh the talking to roberto about the who is like the un you know the person who he's theoretically recording all this for who's going to transcribe it and, you know, talking about how it's uh, the gardener's wife is, like, in a hospital, so get her some flowers and, you know, a big bowl of fruit. <laughs> like, you know, it, it seems odd. And you're like, yeah, this was, like, I, I too was very nervous at the beginning. I'd, I'd never seen this one and had always known about it. And I had always thought it was going to be one of those films where it's, like, in 1943 I was born. Like, you know, just a very dry kind of mm. thing of, like, telling the story of Nixon into a tape recorder or something. But then what it is, is, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it goes, like, the, the camera work in particular is the is probably the key um, to why it it stays fresh yeah. for the, the entirety of the 90 minutes. Yeah. It's, and- stuff, it's stuff like uh, he reenacts, I think it's his inaugural speech at one point, and the camera is, uh, the shot is projected against a window which is you know his reflection and it's he's he's reenacting his inaugural speech to as, as president and he's partially hidden and obscured by this reflection mm. and so you start to get the all these metaphors through the camera work uh of his presidency and his character and that's what you know that's what's so engaging is that you get like this this double layer of nixon being portrayed by um philip baker hall and then also uh, these decisions made by the cameraman. Yeah. Like, and, and that's the thing, like, it is so different from most Altman films because it is, you know, he likes long lenses, shooting things from a distance, overlapping dialogue, the real cinema verite type of style. But this, the I, the, the choice to direct a, a play, like, and he'd done it a couple of times as well. This isn't his only filmed play, but it's, there's such a, different style to it and the fluidity like i mean all, like all those kind of shots that you mentioned the use of the security cameras are amazing yeah there's uh, in particular i really enjoyed so he would the camera would kind of rest on one of the four monitors and he would walk out of the out of frame on that monitor and the camera would switch kind of just pan across to another monitor and mm. he'd walk back into frame um and so you get like this weird sense of of movement and and place and it gives you this, like, it gave me the kind of sense that he's he's moving, but he's really going nowhere. Yeah. Which is another metaphor for, for his fucking presidency, too. So, Which is also brilliant about the way that uh, Hall kind of does the physicality of the character. He never stops moving. He is just endlessly mm. pacing and going nowhere. It's it's crazy. He's like, yeah, just, it's, it's, he's cutting laps. <laughs> yeah. It's really remarkable. Mm. Um, yeah, but, like, Altman, like, the camera work, like, beyond, like, simple kind of ways to kind of break up the, I don't want to use the word monotony, but it's, um, you know, to to kind of mix it up a bit. Um, like, you know, obviously you were saying the window reflection shots with the speech and then, you know, the use of the security camera monitors, but in general, the camera work is amazing. Um, mm-hmm. it's constantly moving. There's like seldom a actual static shot in the film or it, I mean, if it is, it's like static in the way of it, the camera has moved into a still shot. And then from that, it'll rest there for like two to three minutes or something. And then it will flow back out into a different shot. Um, and apparently it was done on like some, uh, a tr- cross between, it's like this weird thing. That's like a cross between like a jib arm a tripod, an actual dolly. It's almost like something you'd see in a TV studio where they can like roll it around and move it and lift it up and down. And so the camera operators would just flow and follow, like uh, making Philip Baker Hall kind of free to use the whole space 
and they could just easily kind of follow and pan and go like you know go with him wherever he was okay i, I did get the sense that they had a lot of insert shots to to hide cuts which kind of broke like it kind of i don't know whether they were some of them didn't feel intentional yeah you know? like they well that they were just is, yeah. to to hide a cut and and hide and like you know redo a take and here's you know what i mean like there's a little bit of that going on but but otherwise i thought that also the uh um, there's a lot of cuts of the the portraits of the faces and yeah you, you could say that while nixon is the single uh, well philip baker hall playing nixon is the single actor um because there are a lot of of these shots of the portraits uh, of eisenhower and and kissinger and all that it does serve to break it up as well like you, yeah. you do get the sense that they're all <clears throat> hanging hanging up on the walls looking over him and judging yeah exactly um, you know like kind of like penetrating him with their judgment and, yeah and he's kind of getting very anxious about that it seems a lot of the time and it almost gets to a point where they're almost becoming the they're they're his audience to, a, to some degree like he is addressing them he's talking about them to them with them it's yeah and so by having those insert cutaways it allows you know obviously the restraints of filming <laughs> like you know they can't just go on a single take for 90 minutes they needed to have some cuts in there so it allows them to do that but it also Altman being Altman brings in this interesting visual element and visual storytelling touch into the film you, you could do that you could do one take not not back then though well I mean like uh, you, you're, I mean shitload of planning uh, no, and, no, like, and and no be... like actual film camera like back then in 84 shooting on like uh, this was shot on 16 millimeter oh, okay. uh, camera yeah, mags only enough. lasted like you know 20 30 minutes so yeah like nowadays oh. with like hard drive technology yeah you're fine but like back then eh. okay thank you for my my knowledge <laughs> my new knowledge about how cameras work yes back in the 80s yeah um, so well uh, let's ask this question then if if you were to, to <laughs> remake the fucking movie, mm-hmm. which would be, I don't know, it, does, it sounds kind of a little bit silly now, but I mean, would it be worthwhile doing a single shot or would it be better to to play with the camera work such that Eltman did? I, I think the question is, what do you gain from it being in a single shot? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I, I'm not sure that there's anything... I mean, it'd be impressive... Yeah, it would be more of a flex. Exactly. It's it's not actually gaining anything through visual storytelling. It it it's just a flex at that point. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, you could you could plan certain things. Like I enjoyed. There's moments where he's throwing the the paper around, and you've got um, you've got the the camera fixed on the monitor, so you can see him. Um, but in reality, he's you know off to the right of the camera, and you watch him throw the paper, and then a second later, the paper kind of flies past the camera lens. Mm. Um, I mean, you could do that kind of thing in a single take, but uh, I mean, you certainly can't do the ending um, no, in and, a single take. So, and that ending was fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because it was so dynamic compared to the rest of the film. Yeah, it it grabs you. Um, yeah, and it's just full on screaming. And then, like the audio design as well was amazing of having it slowly, like with him just repeated, like screaming "fuck em, fuck em," and then. Having the chance of four more years slowly creeping in over it, like yeah, just incredible, and like having absolutely no sound design previously, like you said, it's it just it's so dynamic and like oh shit, we're ending with a fucking uppercut here. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty scathing, really. To be honest, like this film really kind of tears him apart. Yeah, which which I found interesting, like looking at uh, doing some trivia research that uh, people when the film came out, they were really shocked that Altman was doing it because he apparently was a huge fuck Nixon guy. (laughs) And so they were like, wow, it's interesting you're doing this. This is going to be really harsh and scathing. And then they considered it to be um, fairly (laughs) even-handed. Like, not that harsh. Really? Yeah. It it felt harsh. I mean, it's warranted, but it was harsh. Mm. But, uh, well, apparently it was very... it, It didn't... And I think that also goes down to the <laughs> script and whole. Like, it is a human. It, it makes Nixon a human. He's not, like, a grotesque caricature. Like, yeah. he... Like, and that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. Like, it... You feel a modicum of sympathy for the guy. 
Okay. I, I, yeah, because because he he kind of reminisces about his mum, um, and he pulls out the Bible. Uh, he does have like you do get this kind of rich sense of his past history and his family life, and he runs and that through, does humanize him. You know, and he runs through all the jobs and stuff that he used to have, like how he was a used car salesman, he was a dog catcher, all the stuff that he thought endeared him and made him a good person to become president. Like I, I have come from nothing. I am an every man, and that was the stuff that was used against him. Of like, ha, huh, he was a dog catcher, and he was like, fucking oath, I was. <laughs> like, it's it's kind of interesting. True, yeah, yeah, that is kind of sad. I mean, yeah, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing because he he was an angry man. And, oh, very much. And he so. had a he had what I would call a sad life. Yeah, but at the same time, he held so much power that that like you have to hold him responsible as well. Not just so. that, but also abused that power. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so like I'm not saying so, I, I'm not saying I like Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no, of course, of course. Um, <laughs> Lol, yeah. yeah, that's fine. And I, I, I'm saying I can sympathise with Philip Baker Hall's character of Nixon. <laughs> okay. Because the film does open with a giant scrawl saying, like, this is a work of fiction, this isn't, you know... They do their due diligence there, so... Yeah, just so they don't get some kind of law hate. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I thought it was, like, kind of... Maybe you can illuminate me on, on Nixon's mother... Um, yeah, so Nixon's mother, uh, which he seems to revere, and he called her a Quaker saint. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and Quaker's like evangelical Christian. Yep, um, yes. It really, she, sound, she sounded like a dominating woman. And I, I, I want to I know, do you know anything about why he, why, I mean, it sounded like he was called Doggy? By his mum? Like he was oh, yeah, subjected and got- to what I would call... You know, like, he seemed to be pretty suppressed by his mum. Yeah, and then there's that, like, weird scene where he starts, like, going, arf, arf, like, on his old fours and stuff. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, I have no idea about any of that. Like, I knew he came from, like, a family of four kids and, like, uh, one of them died, I think, from polio or something. Like, I knew, like, very brief little things and i'm probably even wrong about that now um <laughs> but I yeah think, no. I, I think a couple of the ki- the kids died or whatever yeah from some kind of disease i i'm not that no it was tuberculosis it was tuberculosis mm. um but yeah no i don't know much about his past other than like you know his political stuff i i tried to i tried to look up what the fuck was going on with that doggy th- shit mm. and i couldn't find anything um but i found it to be really fascinating but, yeah i mean like it sounded like uh, the film was suggesting that Nixon was a a broken man as a result of his family life. Yeah, you know, or I, mean, well, I, I guess that goes without saying because you you come from you know like your upbringing very much makes you mm. uh, who you are to a large degree. Um, but it, it's it was still just like I mean uh, there was many moments like this where. Nixon's doing this completely batshit crazy thing, mm. and you're just like, shit, yeah, cool. Like uh, I'm just taking this in, and and I got no idea what's going on. But yeah, but uh, that kind of works with a lot of the film anyway, because like like we're saying, like there's not, we're not all that up to date with any of that history and stuff. So it's like the stuff he's talking about and the ramblings and the rants he goes on. I don't know about you, but I'm just sitting there being like, I don't follow what's happening here necessarily but i'm enthralled by the performance yeah i, I actually i think that uh i had the same experience and i th- i think that um a lot of it while i didn't understand because i couldn't contextualize you know the the information points that he was kind of seeding there mm. but y- you can still feel it out you can still feel his him out as a person yeah and i think i think that's the that that might be more of the point like because because how the fuck are you supposed to really take in the ramblings of a madman yeah you can you can feel out the ramblings of a madman and kind of try and go with their flow but Mm. ultimately they're just talking kind of crazy shit exactly and yeah without like like we said earlier like it seeing this 10 years post like would have been yeah it's kind of like how we got that dick cheney movie last year or two years ago or whatever it's like oh yeah this this is about the same amount of time we've been post you know, the Bush-Cheney era, that it's like, oh, okay, now we're contextualizing this fucking weirdo. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's it's the fact that we're both able to connect and enjoy, I'm assuming based on how you've been talking about the film, <laughs> enjoy 
this thing. Um, it's a testament to Philip Baker Hall's performance and then also Altman's ability to capture that in a super engaging way on film. Hmm. Where it is... Yeah, it's an odd... I think it's an odd film. Yeah, oh, very much. I mean, it's very unique in that you don't you don't really ever see anything like this. And I connected more on the technical level, but it's so intertwined with with the real person that is Nixon that that the technical aspects, which are amazing, get blurred uh, with with the actual autobiographical, you know, the sorry, the biographical nature of it. Yeah, uh, and so it becomes hard to tell. You know, am I engaging with the technicality, or am I just engaging with Nixon, the the individual? Isn't yeah, that fascinating. Which is why I think probably cri- why Criterion for the physical release and up on the Criterion channel put out like ninety minutes or something of actual press conferences and archival footage of Nixon to help kind of contextualize some of the stuff he's talking about in here. Okay. Mm. Yeah, that would be useful. Mm. But uh, like I, I was so worried about this episode, like um, <laughs> after because it's it's like not this is gonna sound like it's a bad thing, but no, it's a great thing. It is a ninety minute long film, which, given some of the other stuff we watch, isn't very long, and it's one man in a room ranting for ninety minutes. What the fuck are we gonna talk about? <laughs> and I, I'm looking at the time code, and we're you know we're deep into it. I was like, I was very worried this is going to be like a 15 minute episode. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, I was doing shitloads of research. I mean, okay. Yeah. I was also worried. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's fine. Now we're approaching like 40 minute mark. So <laughs> okay. I, I'm almost, we're sort of almost at that point of uh, any, any final thoughts on the actual film before we get into trivia or. Well, I, I kind of want to get to the, Let's talk about... Uh, there's, there's two more things I want to talk about. Uh, and one of them is I just want to kind of get your read on the overall message uh, of the film. Uh, but the And I think we can talk about that last. But the, mm-hmm. the first thing I want to talk about then is why, why do you think it's called Secret Honor? Um, I think that's because... At the end of the day, what we... And I think it, again, all draws back to why I think this paints him somewhat sympathetically, is it... By giving us this glimpse into the ramblings and the... Like, you know, because theoretically what he's doing in saying into the tape recorder is he's recording his memoirs. Like, he's telling his life story. Yeah. And the thing that we get from that is in the face of everything that's happened to him and who he is and, you know, all of that, he seems to still stand by everything he did, so he seems to still... Whether you agree with it or not, he has his honour. He has some kind of code. Yeah, that and... He's, that he's following. Yeah, adhering and... Adhering to. And I think with, with having stuff like, you know, residing the presidency, being um, pardoned by Ford, and then kind of slinking away into a life of kind of, you know hidden away in New Jersey, not really, you know, in the public sphere ever again. It's, it's, it's allowing him to be like, Hey, whatever we thought of this guy, he does still have this quote unquote secret honor that he still lives by and believes okay. in. Okay. That, that was my read at least. Well, I mean, he, he, he declares himself, you know, a, a, a man of the, of you know the American dream, the embodiment of the American dream, and he's a true American mm. or whatever, which is like ridiculous to try and even uh, categorize or, or or anything like that. But mm. maybe I was thinking maybe like there's like the honor amongst thieves connection as well. Uh, but I think I think you kind of I think I like yours your read on it. Like, he's definitely... I mean, like, he's a man that wants power. He's always wanted power. Um, he's always wanted to be, like, you know, punch above his station. So, like, yeah. for lack of a better term. Like, you know... I mean, the, the reason he's why he's striving getting angry for more, a lot of the time... Yeah, striving for more. Like, yeah. The reason why he's getting angry all the time is because he's, his power has been taken from him. Or people so aren't all, taking him serious in his, yeah. like, drive for that power. Yeah. Uh... 
But no, he, he is, yeah, I, I do enjoy, like, I like your read on it. I'm going to go with that one. Yeah, because I, I think at the end of the day as well, like, there's, while it's interesting, it, like, all the Watergate stuff and, you know, it, it to bring that into it, um, I think that just works to help contextualize the stuff he's talking about, whereas at the end of the day, the film is just presenting us an examination of him as a character. And so all, at the end of the day, all we have left to look at at the end of the film is who he was as a character as portrayed by this film. But, yeah, but I mean, like, it's interesting that at the start of the film, he, he, he thinks of himself as the true American, um, the, the battler that kind of went from the bottom and rose to the top. But then towards the end, he's kind of so... Um, but he's kind of so broken that oh, he thinks yeah. himself that, that... So what if he's a, a petty thief and a scam artist... Um, but because you know everybody else is so yeah, and what I did wasn't wrong. It was what everyone else did. Like you know, he contradicts himself constantly, and yeah, yeah. But that, that's why I was thinking. Well, if if he's like a petty thief and a scam artist, then he's he's following some kind of, um, you know, thieves like yeah, code of honor. Mm. Um, but but yeah, but then then so I don't know, like. It's a, it's a real, like, you can only ever feel out the character, I, I, I think. I mean, you can try and make, I mean, it's, it, the whole film is trying to make sense of Nixon. It's trying to understand him. Um, and, and there is, there is a bias clearly that it's just like, he was a kind of shitty guy, but, <laughs> yeah. but I suppose, but I suppose that, you know, everybody <laughs> knows that by now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, it, it, like even towards the end when, when it's got that whole fucking moment. You know, the very end, the fuck him, where he's even to the at the very end, he wants to go against the American public who want him. He, he should. He's thinking, well, maybe they want me to pick up this gun and shoot myself in the head. Mm. Fuck him. I'll fucking I'll do precisely what they don't want me to do yet again. Yeah, I'm going to do what I want to do. Fuck him. Yeah. Fuck him. Four more years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's amazing it's amazing ending. I love the ending so fucking much. Yeah, yeah. I, I want I want uh, somebody to do this for Trump. By the way, so fucking much. Oh, well, how interesting. Okay, I, here's my here's my uh, my pitch. Okay, so Robert Altman does Secret Honor. Uh, Secret Honor is uh, one of P. T. Anderson's favorite films ever made, and P. T. Anderson ended up being kind of a protege or a kind of um, you know. Yeah, Proje is probably a good word for it, of uh, Altman, uh, down to the point of, I think it was Altman's final film that he made when he was in, in his late 80s, like the year he died. Um, for insurance reasons, they had to have a, another director like lined up in case he died on set to like come in and finish the film. And it was P.T. Anderson. Like, he'd stepped in and was like, yeah, I'll do this, Robert. Like, yeah. And so my theory is P.T. Anderson does the one-man show version of Trump movie. Oh, my goodness. That's that's my pitch. <laughs> that would, yeah. Who do you, who I do you fucking ca- love that. Who do you cast though? Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's dead. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing at that. But yeah, because I miss that man. No, you can, you're laughing at me. I'll take that. Okay. <laughs> because yeah, I know, I know that. And yet, I, yet I yet I said his name. Ah well. Um, okay, somebody else then. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Gary Oldman. I don't know. <laughs> that's too. That's too easy. That's yeah. too easy. No, the easy one would be like Alec Baldwin. <laughs> Kevin Spacey. Get get like a monster to play a monster. <laughs> <laughs> I'm googling who who would who's the best like Trump actor. First one to come up would be Alec Baldwin because of Saturday Night Live. I guarantee. What? actor would best play Trump actors who could play Donald Trump who have we got uh, Jeff Bridges is number 8 this list of 10 starts at 8 <laughs> where do you go internet John Travolta, nah. They're, they're just fucking... Li- it's just like a list of actors. Yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio. No! 
Christian Bale. Let me just go to number one. They're just going Christian Bale because he did Vice. Yep. John Voight. That would be... That's actually kind of interesting. Oh, yeah. He would never do it, though, because he's actually a huge Trump supporter. Or unless he just didn't get what was happening. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's old and senile. <laughs> uh, John Goodman, number two. And, lol, yeah, Alec Baldwin is number one. Of course. You know, like, if I... The interesting one that popped into my head, like, if you... If you went, like, the full Christian Bale, Vice, Dick Cheney route, where, like, he gained the weight and, you know, did all that. What about Jim Carrey? Fat Jim Carrey plays Trump? Yeah. Like, does uh, Jim Carrey does, like, an Eternal Sunshine Truman Show-style dramatic you, turn? You don't want that. You don't know that. Because we just went through why you don't want, like, a, a, a Nixon that's kind of got the, like, the overacted... The, the over makeup. True. All right. Well, fuck you, it then. You, don't, you want to avoid that because you, then you, you won't get a secret honor. You'd get yeah. something else. You'd get like some comical bullshit. Well, fuck it then. I just want like mid to late 50s gym, skinny Jim Carrey playing Trump. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm satisfied with that. Yeah. Let's just paint his hair. Like I'll, I'll at least get, get the hair orange or like, yeah. you know, get the orange fake tan and like the ha- the gray hair or something. Like, yeah. You know, that's fine. No prosthetics, but yeah. <laughs> That's fine. And, like, he could put on weight, and that's fine. Yeah. But you don't want him slathered... Yeah. We get it. <laughs> well, you, you could probably slather him, and it'd be a correct portrayal. But. Exactly. You need that slim white line. Anyway, enough Trump. <laughs> uh, what was the other one you wanted to kind of end on? No, we, we got it. Oh, we got uh, it? Yeah, no, I was, I was trying to figure out, like, the kind of overarching message, but you kind of nailed it with the... Um, Oh, no, wait. Did I do that? Did we do that? Mm-hmm. No, we, we've done that. We've all done right. it all. Sweet. Well, in that case, do you want to hear a little bit of trivia? Sure. So the film won the Fopresky Prize at the 1985 Berlin Film Festival, uh, where it tied for that award with 20 years later. Uh, the production <laughs> shot... Uh, the production shoot for the film uh, went for just seven days, so they shot it all in a week uh, in a building in a couple of rooms at the University of Michigan, where um, Robert Altman was a film professor at the time. Uh, the do, you, do you have the budget? No, unfortunately. Um, oh, we, we've got to look the budget. Right. Well, while you're looking at the budget, I'll say that uh, you know they filmed at the University of Michigan, where he was a film professor. Uh, the crew consisted of mostly students of the university who were studying film. Um, yes. <laughs> Uh, Time Out magazine stated that the film was made with a student crew. So, and that's why at the end of the credits it has a giant block saying, you know, shout out to these students that helped us make it. I thought this was a fun quote. Uh, co-writer of the original play and obviously this screenplay, uh, Donald Freed uh, once said that director Robert Altman's main contribution to the movie was having the courage to film it at all. I thought that was a nice little quote. It is ballsy. I mean, especially for the 80s. Um, to try and pull something like this off. Hmm. I can't find fucking budget. Yeah, it, it's too long ago in, like, such a small little film. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think we've gone through most of my trivia anyway, just in general conversation. So, um, I was looking up to see um, what critics thought of it, and... Um, you know, Vincent Canby called it a fascinating, funny, offbeat movie. Um, something of a cinematic tour de force of both Altman and, and previously unknown Philip Baker Hall. Oh, Uh, right. Oh. Uh, Pauline Kale called the film a small, weird triumph. And, uh, Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars. Uh, he absolutely loved it and called it one of the most brilliant films of 1984. Yeah, of course. Hmm. I think I think that's like the the, the takeaway um, is the performance and also the ingenuity behind it. Yeah, and and just like the balls to just go like you know what we can we can make something like this work. Yeah, because um, I I believe this was one of if not the first like real portrayal of Nixon like on screen like as a character I guess. But uh, we'll move on to the actual Criterion edition itself. Uh, so the film is still in print from Criterion as a one-disc DVD. It's also available on the Criterion channel. And it comes with uh, audio commentaries with director Robert Altman and co-writer Donald Freed. Uh, new 22-minute in- video interview with actor Philip Baker Hall. 
81 minutes of archival film excerpts from the uh, from the political career of President Richard M. Nixon, as well as the usual booklet and essays the Criterion usually do. So not much, but like interesting stuff that is there. Um, yeah. Hmm. But, uh, I, I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed, uh, Robert Altman again, and, uh, him dabbling into politics, because, uh, next week, we're going to be doing Tanner 88. Is that also Altman? That is a 11-episode miniseries for HBO made by Robert Altman in 1988, about a fictional Democratic candidate running for president in the 1988 election. Okay. Yeah. Mm. I, I will say I, uh, I started, like, knowing this was coming up, I um, ended up just started watching it myself anyway, uh, in advance. I'm one episode in. It's a slow burn, it's funny, and it's interesting to watch Altman shot on video. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's my tease, I guess. <laughs> That's fine. Hmm. Hey, everybody. Uh, just jumping in here real quick. Um, with the Tanner 88 episode next week, we're going to try to get it out for the Wednesday-Thursday kind of release time. Uh, but given that it's a uh, nearly six-hour-long miniseries and uh, with Tom and I both kind of working and having fairly busy schedules at the moment, uh, we're going to try and get it out, but it might be a couple of days late. Just sort of jumping in to let you know. Anyway. Back to the episode. But um, otherwise, I guess that'll probably wrap us up for talking about Secret Honor. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, if you have any comments or queries or anything, you can always send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Uh, or you can follow me on Twitter at CriterionQuest. Or if you feel so inclined, you can uh, help support this show by uh, subscribing to our Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com slash thecriterionquest, where we're putting up audio commentaries. I think we're going to sit down to record our next one in a couple of days. Yeah, that's right. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I guess that'll wrap us up for this week's episode. Thanks again, everybody. Uh, For this week's episode, I'm Chris. And I'm Tom. See you next time.